Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. So we've got two amazing guests, Georgie Dinkoff, who is the pro-metabolic expert with respect to integrating and recommending uh, Ray Pete's uh, work and doing a lot of work, independent work from himself, of course. And then Tyler Barron, who has been on this uh, podcast previously before. Tyler is a, I think you're a professor. Is, is, is exercise physiology one of the courses you teach? Yeah, it's chemistry, exercise physiology, and then and the master's class of uh, our exercise, uh, nutrition, and sports bioenergetics. So I'm I'm an adjunct instructor or adjunct professor, depending on how you define that area. But yeah, those uh, classes I teach. Okay, so you've got the and he's really smart. Uh, you got a great <laughs> brain and understands biology and chemistry pretty well. And uh, I was with Tyler at the biohacking event in Orlando just recently. And uh, I was excited to share with him because Tyler is also an elite athlete. I mean, he's definitely elite, almost world-class and probably in, in a specific niche, but definitely in, in the independent event, events that he competes in, uh, distance running, resistance training, Oh, world-class arm wrestler. In fact, he taught me how to, <laughs> how to, I'm going to actually show this video of uh, how I was able to actually beat someone much you know, half my age and, you know, significantly more muscular mass than I had with, with the skills that he taught me. But anyway, so his passion is exercise. I, I love exercise, but I'm, I'm not as deeper in the science. And I shared with Tyler the uh, recommendation from the, pro-metabolic community that the eccentric exercise is actually not that good as compared to the concentric. So from here, and that's, that's my simple summary. I went into it a little more details and Tyler has some concerns on it. So I just wanted to, 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 to um, negotiate, not negotiate, but just, just have a, a, a pro and con uh, ep, uh, dialogue here. So Georgie, why don't you state the position? Cause you, you know, it really well of the, 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 uh, reasons why concentric exercise would be far preferred to improving your mitochondrial biogenesis as opposed to eccentric, which would actually uh, impair mitochondrial uh, reproduction. So really two main main uh, claims here. One is that, uh, uh, at least the studies that I've seen, is that uh, concentric exercise increases the mitochondrial biogenesis and the density and the size of the mitochondria a lot more than eccentric does. Second thing is that concentric exercise has been shown to improve glucose uptake into the cell and reduce the synthesis of lactic acid. Third is that the concentric exercise, but not so much eccentric, in fact, almost no effect of the eccentric, um, depending on the, on the cell, um, concentric exercise increases, allows the muscle cells to synthesize a lot of these protective steroids that we've discussed on the podcast. In males, specifically testosterone, uh, and in females, um, you know, surprisingly, things like dihydroepiandrosterone, which is supposed to be predominantly of adrenal origin. Turns out that it's not, and muscles can produce it as well. While eccentric seems to be mostly good for hypertrophy, um, and, and maybe in corroboration to that, 
during eccentric exercise only, it's been shown that the muscles produce predominantly estrogen, which, as we've discussed several times, is more involved in cellular proliferation. Um, so you can get bulkier on eccentric exercise, but probably not stronger and not not as metabolically healthy if you assume that a, a good oxidation of glucose and production of these anti-catabolic hormones such as pregnenolone, progesterone, DHA, testosterone for males, and mostly DHA for women uh, is what we're after. That's really in a nutshell. Okay, thanks. Perfect. So Tyler. Yeah, well, Georgia, thanks for explaining that. Um, I, and you, you know, you you probably know more about this specific area than I do just because I haven't looked at these specific things, but I do teach you know, like I said, exercise physiology. So I'll just give some of my thoughts on this. Um, I think it's important. You did clarify one point that Dr. McCullough didn't say before um, <laughs> regarding the concentric versus centric in terms of the mitochondrial biogenesis. That, yes, I would agree with. Um, there, there's a lot of data that would show that, you know, eccentric exercises, eccentric running, eccentric cycling, a lot of these simply don't um, have as much oxygen consumption, right? The O2 cost is a lot lower. Um, And and also during that eccentric exercise, you're you're damaging the contractile proteins, Mm -hmm. you're breaking down, you know, the architecture of the sarcomeres. So yes, in in those regards, it doesn't seem that there would be any stimulus, uh, at least not near as much compared to concentric exercise for mitochondrial biogenesis and for oxygen uptake and the ATP demands and everything. Um, eccentric exercise just doesn't require that. And then I also would agree with what your statement regarding the, uh, the hypertrophy aspect. You, you, that's exactly what I was telling Dr. Mercola, that eccentric exercise is, is really key for the hypertrophy um, and, and, and for the strength. Now, I would say then what, what are the superiorities, in my opinion, of the eccentric exercise? Well, a lot of studies, including um, uh, meta-analysis and systemic reviews, have shown that in terms of strength performance and, and hypertrophy, depending on how you're going to measure it, eccentric exercise ends up winning. Now, there's a couple of caveats to this, but let me just explain what, in general, I would say that the research is suggesting. Um, for, first off, as we said before, it's the eccentric exercise is damaging the muscular architecture. Uh, that damage to the muscle cells is one of the potent stimuli for anabolism, for, for, for muscle protein synthesis. It's not the only one. Of course, metabolic waste and, and, and many other stimulus is also important. But eccentric exercise damaging the, 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 the actual muscle fibers is a potent stimulus. So if you some of these studies, for example, when they did just a concentric exercise without the eccentric portion, there was hardly any benefit in terms of increased strength and increased hypertrophy um, versus a group that did only eccentric and not the concentric portion. So essentially they're doing half the amount of reps because they're doing the concentric portion. That's, you know, that's, that's halfway. And then the other group's only doing only the lowering phase, right? So essentially to half the amount, they were able to improve just as much, if not often more in, in different parameters in terms of strength and hypertrophy. And the other part was interesting is doing that eccentric portion of the exercise um, seems to increase the muscle uh, hypertrophy longitudinally. Um, basically, you're putting sarcomeres, the, the, um, the functional unit of the muscle in series. And, and that can have some benefits. So you have maybe more muscle growth um, at the distal ends of, of the muscle. And, and that could explain even some differences between why, why say, uh, power lifters who are lifting extremely heavy weight often do eccentric loading 
um, their, their muscles and the way they look is different than a bodybuilder um, where, where they're, they're trying to train their muscles to look a certain way versus for absolute strength. So I, I, so I, so going back to what we agree with, yeah, mitochondrial biogenesis, you know, um, all of the, 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 uh, oxygen utilization, um, you know, that makes much more sense for the concentric, for concentric exercise. But I would still say in terms of, um, muscle strength and hypertrophy, the eccentric exercise is very important. Oh, but one other interesting caveat that Dr. Nicola, you'll appreciate. There was a study and I don't know if there's more on this, but I thought it was very interesting with blood flow restriction training. It appeared that in that case, actually, concentric exercise was probably more important and more effective, which sort of makes sense because when you do eccentric exercise with blood flow restriction, you, you, you're not lifting very much weight. So you're not going to be able to break down the mm. architecture of the muscles very much. So the, the primary stimulus in that case is the metabolic waste. And, mm -hmm. and, and so the blood flow restriction, you're going to get a lot more of that. When you're forcing the mitochondria, the uh, the creatine phosphate system, the glycolysis, all of this producing all the metabolic waste is going to primarily come from concentric exercise because the eccentric exercise, just as, like like Georgie said earlier, you're not using, you're not creating as much metabolic energy because it's not as metabolically demanding as the concentric portion. So with BFR, concentric is probably more important than the eccentric phase, but not with standard resistance training. So I guess if if I'm hearing correctly, we can say that eccentric exercise is kind of like a hormetic response, uh, because you're damaging the muscle periodically, and then then you have like a like a over response by the growth, right? While the concentric exercise is mostly stimulating oxygen consumption and oxidation of glucose. I have a counterexample because you said that the powerlifters do a lot of eccentric. Um, I'm originally from Bulgaria and. One of the few sports that we used to be known for, not anymore, <laughs> was powerlift, Olympic powerlifting. Yeah, uh, those people are actually weightlifting, not powerlifting, because it's different. It so different. they never do eccentric exercise. They're doing snatches, right? They're doing like push and then drop. They never ever do in in the actual training portion uh, eccentric exercise. They don't run also either. Like they basically they're entirely yeah. they lift the lift the, they lift the weight once and they drop it. And studies on that, several have shown that they have a, probably the highest muscle contraction force per square inch that has been measured so far. How do you explain that? Um, uh, uh, well, so, or would you agree that concentric is better for strength, while eccentric is for hypertrophy? Okay, this is this is this is amazing. This is great. So first, I would say that they're both true, um, they're, but but it's not totally a paradox. It's because now we're talking about elite levels, and this okay. goes into terms of specificity. In general, all in all, eccentric exercise you're going is going to make you stronger and it's going to grow your muscles more. But when mm -hmm. you start getting to that elite level, now you start talking about sports specificity. And if you're going to do really, really good at eccentric exercise, you're going to get really, really good at eccentric exercise, not necessarily maximal concentric, voluntary concentric action. And so when, when you take elite level uh, uh, athletes or people who are extremely well resistance trained, and you have one group do 100% um, concentric, concentric um, partial repetitions and, and these different things and, and isometric static holds and, and an eccentric, another group that does just the eccentric portion. Well, then at the end of whatever the study, you know, eight weeks or whatever you decide to do, and then you measure the parameters, 
you're going to find that the group that did the isometric is going to perform the best in isometric and not as well in the eccentric or concentric. And the group that does a concentric performs the best in concentric, but not as well in isometric or eccentric. And the group that does eccentric is going to perform the best in eccentric, but not as well in the other two groups. And they're both going to see these improvements, and some might even see a little bit decrease. I would still say that the eccentric group will probably see the least decrease in the other two, but still not as good as just the concentric. But again, this is at the elite level. And so... Of course, I don't want to say that I'm, you know, elite. I know Dr. McCullough, you should always like, oh, you. But, but, but I'm just saying as an experience for me, um, I, I like to do uh, one-arm pull-ups, okay, and for arm wrestling training. And so I will often um, take another dumbbell with my other hand, like, you know, 25 to even 35, as high as a 45-pound dumbbell, do a pull-up, hold with this arm, and, and I'll just hold and slowly go down like this and that's an eccentric portion yeah, yeah and i was really working on that and i was getting pretty good at, at doing a number of slow repetitions with 45 extra pounds and then i was excited to see just how easy it would be to do my normal one-arm pull maybe i could hit you know five or six or seven repetitions i go and do it and it's harder than it's ever been before so but what that tells me is i certainly got better at the eccentric portion doing eccentric exercises but that didn't fully translate to my concentric action. But that's largely because I'm at this level where I have been training for so many years at this high level that it doesn't give me that same advantage that it might give somebody else. The number one recommendation that we give people who can't do a pull-up is to just hold yourself over the bar and lower yourself down slowly. And you have a, one group does that and the other group that just tries to pull as hard as they can or do jumping pull-ups. The group that does the eccentric, they'll be able to do a pull-up much faster than the other group. That works for the the, um, the 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 less trained you know individuals, and and it makes sense because the eccentric exercise um, that that reduces neural inhibition of uh, you know because you have like the Golgi tendon organ for example, you have different things, so it's going to reduce that area. It's also going to increase the muscle activation of the agonist muscles to help you you know um, activate those muscle fibers more, and you know so it's going to so increase that neural drive as well as it decreases the co-activation of the antagonistic muscles. Because often as you're, as you're lifting, like trying to do like a, a bicep curl, your triceps are, are, are also contracting a little bit also. And, and you want to be able to decrease that activation. And eccentric exercise helps to do that. And then you also are facilitating more recruitment of type 2 muscle fibers and even making a transition from more of the type 1 to type 2 muscle fibers. Your type 2X muscle fibers become more type 2-like. So in general, I would say... Th those benefits are you're going to see the most when you're talking about um, an untrained and relatively trained population, but it starts to be diminished at the high elite level because of sport specificity. So I really like that what you just said. Basically, the eccentric will, will favor the the increase of the type two muscle fibers, which are which favor fatty acid oxidation. They're they're not really glycolytic. So maybe uh, a, in some way we can say that eccentric exercise will allow you to apply for longer, lower amount of force, which will still be much higher than baseline. While concentric will create ability to to, to apply much higher peak force at peak, but for much shorter times. Does that sound reasonable? Yes. Well, and, and because we are talking about the type two muscle fibers and just and, and just for a clarification, I would say our type two muscle fibers, those are our fast twitch muscle fibers. Yeah. So, right, so they're you're using more the of glycolytic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, in that, in that case, and I also want to point out another thing that we get to talk about is this the force velocity relationship um, with, with with our muscle fibers. So if we, we can draw a little graph and we have on 
so let's say on our on our y-axis, we're gonna say the that that's gonna be the strength of contraction, right? And then on our x-axis um, would be the velocity. And what we know is when we lift something, um, the, the faster we're able to lift something, right? It means that the less amount of weight we're able to lift. Like we're doing a maximal lift, like with bench press or something, we're not going super fast. We're, we're, we're barely being able to move it, right? And so that's the, this a curved linear inverse relationship that the, the heavier the weight, the slower the velocity. And that's true for concentric exercise. And for strength training, it's often good to work along this entire curve. So sometimes you're, you're lifting at a lower weight, but you're keeping that velocity along that curve so you can continue activating your type 2 muscle fibers and getting the recruitment of all you know, fiber type distributions. But it's, that, that relationship is actually different for the eccentric exercise. With the eccentric exercise, um, as the, the, the speed of contraction increases, the amount of weight that can be uh, maneuvered also increases. And so you're able to lift an, an, an enormous amount of weight eccentrically at a faster velocity. Um, and so going to what you were saying before, that right there is, is also really going to help to activate your type 2 muscle fibers and that recruitment um, e even more so. So what about, let's say, for NFL, the, the, the football players? It's my understanding, based on like some people that have emailed me, they claim to be you know, working with NFL players or be retired ones, that for strength, they're doing most of the concentric things, such as flipping this massive tire or pushing the sled, while for for muscle mass and actually really for, for bulk, they're doing the regular weightlifting, which is, I guess, half concentric, half eccentric. At least that's what, that's what they've been told by the coaches. How do you respond to that? Well, that was a little bit difficult because you have to do what works. And, and because you're talking about elite level you know, NFL football players, that might go, be going back into the realm of sports specificity. Your, okay. your football players are super strong, but no NFL football player is setting world records in the bench press or the squat or the deadlift, right? And so it, it's about um, accumul you know, accumulating um, you know, mass and strength and having this uh, – you know, it's a specificity towards football as opposed to specifically just the weight training and setting a PR or something. Right. Um, so I think that probably goes hand in hand. But but maybe uh, the coaches are wrong. Maybe there maybe they would find that there'd be actually better benefits if they would adjust their training protocol a little bit more to focus more on you know certain areas of the eccentric portion because you know you do want to get that that muscle breakdown. Um, that that's that's terrible. You get you get the DOMS right, the delayed onset muscle soreness. And if you're able to do eccentric enough, then you'll prevent DOMS from happening. In fact, you get what's called the repeated bout effect, where do, doing a heavy day of eccentric exercise and then the, like the very next day doing another set, it doesn't really break down the muscular archi architecture um, even more. There's a protective effect, and your body can adapt quite quickly to, to doing this. And there could be some benefits to that, so that when you're actually in the game, and you're pushing yourself so hard, and there's a lot of uh, um, you know acceleration and deacceleration de at very high speeds. Um, this could potentially help prevent injuries, um, increase your, your tendon strength, your your muscle mo uh, motor neuron connection, uh, your muscle fibers. There could be benefits there that I that I you know that I could hypothesize. So maybe it would be good if they changed a little bit of their their training to focus on those things some more. Okay, well, George, uh, Georgie, I'll, I'll bet. Dimes of dollars that you've got some pro metabolic interventions to address DOMS. I could think of a few. To so address what? The DOMS, the delayed onset muscle soreness. 
Oh yeah, I mean the metabolic, yeah, so the methylene yeah. blue, the thiamine, the niacinamide. Yeah, once you, um, but just once you just review them, like we haven't discussed them before, because I, I you know, Tyler, Tyler wasn't here when we discussed that. So, because that, that that's a really good point. It, I know it's not specifically about the concert for Z surgery. I think it's an important tangent, though, that because uh, if you're if you're participating in exercise resistance training seriously you're going to encounter doms and it's however some, some scientists actually like the buildup of lactic acid and they're saying it's one of the primary growth factors for hypertrophy so they're going for it now if we if you don't want that if you don't want the lactic acid buildup uh, some of the, the the most extensive evidence is for taking vitamin b1 maybe about an hour before exercise um, and that will uh, stimulate the activity dose Oh, so depends on the type. So the the studies that I've seen are with regular thiamine hydrochloride, 300 to 500 milligrams. Some use much higher. And then there are the lipophilic analogs. The studies are mostly done in Korea and Japan because that's where those were synthesized. And, and we're taking 100 to 150 milligrams uh, single dose before the exercise. And that about half the the rise in lactate you know as a result of the uh, of the extensive exercise i think mm. the korean study was with was with ta elite taekwondo players uh, and the japanese i think did it with baseball players runners and i think sumo players as well uh, so they were using the japanese were using alitiamine and the uh, the koreans were using fursultiamine i think which is another lipophilic mm. analog and that lowered the lactic acid rise by about 50% uh, whether you like that or not, it's a separate story. I know several coaches are basically specifically saying, don't fear the muscle burn. You need it yeah. for muscle growth. Uh, and I think there's some truth to that because the reductants uh, are acting as pseudohypoxins pseudo and are stimulating the, the muscle, cell muscle cell proliferation. But I have a, a, a question about eccentric and concentric in regards to a protein known as myostatin, which you're probably familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, multiple studies demonstrate that when you're doing eccentric exercise, um, you know, uh, initially the, the, uh, the amount of myostatin in the muscles decreases. However, depending on how long you do that, eventually it goes back to baseline and even increases, which is what one study uses an explanation why, let's say, long-distance runners are never hypertrophic. I mean, there may be another reason, but they adapt. They cannot carry this, uh, you know, tremendous muscle mass uh, for all these, like, was twenty six miles. But you see that effect even in shorter durations, such as um, high, level, high competitive rowing, which I used to do in college. Even the heavyweights of of these uh, of the sport are in the first and second year. They look like bodybuilders, but after that, I guess towards the senior when they adapt, um, basically they are they they they're starting to look lean. Um, and this one of the studies said that this is basically as a result of the adaptive increase in myostatin uh, if you do chronic uh, eccentric exercise predominantly. Yeah, that's interesting. So, okay, so a couple of things that's, uh, that I find interesting. Number one, uh, yeah, the, the thiamine. Um, yeah, I wonder what, I mean, I haven't heard that before. It would be interesting. I'll have to look at that, but I'm just assuming that perhaps that mechanism is because thiamine is a cofactor for the PDH, pyruvidehydrogenase yeah. complex, to help shuttle pyruvate into the mitochondria. And, you know, if you're low on that for whatever reason, especially if you drink alcohol, um, that could be problematic. Um, so so that could, that's interesting. But then the other thing, you're going to love this, uh, uh, lactic acid. I I have a personal problem with that term because, as you probably already know, oh, yes, yes. lactate. Yeah, yeah lactate, and 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 it's hard to say lactate because everyone thinks about you know, are you are you lactating or you know, lactation or something, right? But but the, 
I, I have to talk about this because uh, it's, it's one of my favorite topics, but it's important to, to that we recognize that um, lactic acid is never actually formed in the body. And almost all textbooks even get that wrong. In fact, I, I have this textbook, one of these, yeah, one of my exercise phys textbooks um, here that mentions lactic acid. And, it, and, and generally what they do is they say that um, the lactic acid molecule is produced and then as soon as it's shuttled out of the cell, it converts to lactate and the hydrogen ion. Yeah. But that's actually not even true itself. That lactic acid is never formed, only lactate. That py pyruvate, right, is, is, is the end product of glycolysis. You take pyruvate and you add on to that um, two hydrogens and two electrons. And so the formation of lactate actually increases the pH of the body. So going, George, to what you were saying earlier about the benefits of lactate, well, that's a big one right there. So I just want to talk a little bit about the benefits of, of, of lactate as I'm explaining how lactic acid itself doesn't exist but, um, uh, in, in the body. For, first off, if you were to take pyruvate and lactate dehydrogenase and put it like in, in water at a pH of 7 and make the reaction go forward, you'd actually see the pH rise of the water because, again, you are you are requiring a hydrogen ion from the solution. So the pH actually rises. And that's critical because it is the production of lactate that retards acidosis and, and, and for in two reasons. One, because it's, the de it's increasing intracellular pH from the, from the production of, of uh, formation of lactate from pyruvate. And then two, when it does go into the cell, it goes through, go, goes through the cell into the blood um, it has to go through a transporter, which is a this monocarboxylate transporter, which requires um, a, another cation or a hydrogen ion in order to transport out. So basically, for every lactate molecule that gets out excreted into the blood, um, you are losing two hydrogen ions, and so the pH is, of, of the cell is able to maintain that higher the P, higher pH a lot more effectively. And of course, the blood is full of bicarbonates and hemoglobin and many buffering um, molecules, so in protein, so it can easily handle that for the most part. Um, but the other big thing is is that production of lactate causes, and I'm you guys probably talked about this a lot, but causes that regeneration of NAD plus so that the glycolysis can continue. That's the, that's the number one reason why we um, start producing lactate in the first place. Like when you start sprinting um, and you, 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 there's actually plenty of oxygen available. There's enough oxygen available to maintain a maximal sprint um, you know, for, and, and to make the ATP. It's just you can't do it because of the kinetics, of right. the enzyme kinetics in order, in order to make it's, ATP it's, fast enough. That's the Warburg effect. Yeah. Yes. Anaerobic, anaerobic glycolysis. Basically, yeah. you you have a buildup of NADH, uh, and since they cannot be quickly oxidized quickly enough to the Krebs and from transport chain, glycolysis works much easier by using pyruvate as the oxidant. Exactly. Yeah. So you're able to regenerate that NAD plus. Yeah. Um, so so that's key. And then uh, what you were saying earlier, Georgie, I think it's very important that I I agree that this that lactate is a um, neuromodulatory. Uh, hormone that has so many benefits. It increases, um, you know, be benefits to st stimulating you know, mu muscle protein synthesis, for example. Um, it correlates with acid production and metabolic waste, like inorganic phosphate, calcium, all this metabolic waste, which we know has a stimulus for uh, protein synthesis. And then lactate is actually a preferred energy source of the brain as well, interestingly enough. 
Um, it's it's a uh, it has very therapeutic effects in the brain. Maybe it has relevance to increasing BDNF, brain derived neurotropic factor. So I I love lactate. I think it's great. And the mitochondria can also uptake lactate. There's there's a transporter a lactate mitochondria lactate transporter that can actually up, uptake and oxidize um, lactate as well. Um, so anyway, I, I just wanted to go off that topic a little bit and then go into the. Uh, um, interesting point you about the endurance runners right they're doing a lot of eccentric running basically they're hitting the ground it's a lot of muscle damage to to their to their legs uh, yet they're not huge right their muscles are, are very very small um like mine <laughs> my I, I ran so much um that that it's it's, it's a benefit to having you know a, a, a certain size and diameter of, of your legs so you can have very good running efficiency um and I, I agree with you that I think that, that with the myostatin, that is certainly uh, what, what is happening initially. Of course, myostatin levels decrease, and then it can go back to baseline and increase even further, which makes sense because, um, you know, uh, the eccentric exercise is a potent stimulator of hypertrophy. And so the higher the hypertrophy, the higher the myostatin levels um, are going to be. But I think you, you already said that's just one of the reasons, but some of those other reasons, of course, is you're still not doing, um, you know, your, your typical, you know, type two muscle fiber recruitment, you know, a, a 30 second type of exercise. I mean, you're running for hours at a time even, and that's not going to be the same stimulus. And in fact, you're activating AMPK um, and PGC1 alpha and the, the peroxone proliferator atrophy receptors, you know, your, your PPAR gamma air areas. And, and that is- You're emulating not- fasting basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all the oxidative phosphorylation pathways, mitochondria, that's, that's certainly um, not going to, you know, increase your muscle hypertrophy, uh, your muscle fiber size and things. Terrific. Um, Interestingly, uh, we were talking previously about uh, Katsu or about blood flow restriction training. And I neglected to mention to Georgie that one of the known mechanisms is myostatin inhibitions. So, but it has a direct impact on that. So it's one of the, one of the ways it seems to work. Um, but getting back to DOMS prevention, uh, one of the other ways that I found personally is useful is uh, red light therapy uh, done within as soon as possible after the precipitating event, you know, ideally almost immediately after, but up to a half hour. Uh, and, uh, or near infrared would work too, or both. Red and near infrared both seem to hit the uh, to work in the mitochondria. I think that seems to. I'm not sure of the mechanism, but it seems to be helpful for that. It, so it I can, might. I can suggest. Could, yeah. I was just saying it, it might. It seems like it could probably be helpful, just because um, you know some of those the DOMs in order to fix the DOMs, it requires actually quite a bit of ATP. Uh, synthesis, and you've got to clear out all the metabolic waste, the tissues, you've got to do a lot of, you know, degradation of damaged muscle fibers, and then rebuilding all of those. And so you want to have some sort of active, you know, blood flow active, um, you know, just just things going on in the cells and the red light therapy, I could, I could envision this accelerating that process because of its effect on mitochondrial ATP uh, synthesis and some of the other things going on. But, yeah. but I guess so saying uh, nitric oxide from complex four. There's, yeah, there's exactly. two other mechanisms, red light, specifically red light and not infrared light, increases the actual amount of pyruvate dehydrogenase that is in the cell. So it somehow stimulates oh, I didn't know its that. synthesis. Second, really? another thing it does how is does, how does it do that? 
unknown. Russians have a lot of study on it with LLT, low-level laser therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and specifically, just with a very minor amount, like very focused dot of red laser, uh, they've been doing things like uh, trying to treat uh, several muscular dystrophic diseases such as Huntington and even ALS. Uh, but so they noticed the PDH increase. They don't know the mechanism yet. Another thing that red light does is like if complex four is somehow blocked, usually by nitric oxide or God forbid, carbon monoxide, uh, red light can break that bond. So you kind of freeze your complex four, which is usually the rate limiting step, assuming your Krebs cycle is working. Um, so so yeah, it, two it, it liberates effects. carbon monoxide too. I did not realize that. Yeah, it's a very strong bond. I think it's covalent, but red light can break it. Methylene blue is another thing that can break the bond. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I think that's blue. one of the indications for methylene blue in the emergency room is carbon monoxide poisoning, along with cyanide. That's, that's what it's, that's what it's usually, yeah. 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 But you got to do it quickly before the, yeah. the hypoxia. That, that's the, in my yeah, view, really the only legitimate indication for intravenous methylene blue, because otherwise oral is fine. Yeah. But when seconds count, you need it. You know, it's, I was saying about the methylene blue, and I'll have to look to, you know, I, I mean, I, I haven't tried it. Um, we we actually use it um, to measure hydrogen gas concentration in water. You can use oh, is that what it blue. is? H yeah, methylene blue. blue. I didn't know it was methylene blue, but it makes sense. I never knew it was methylene blue. Yeah, methylene blue. Of course, you have to have a platinum catalyst in it. So we use, there's platinum nanoparticles inside, and then that activates the hydrogen gas to electrons and protons. And then that way it has a reaction. And um, w when we study hydrogenase enzymes, for example, methylene blue is a, a very common thing to use because the methylene blue simply acts as the final electron acceptor. And, mm -hmm. and that way you can, you know, basically monitor the electron transport chain of the hydrogenase enzymes. Um, but it's interesting, though, because it, just thinking about the... Uh, um, mechanism of how methylene blue might be acting in the mitochondria and in the cells, um, it's possible that it, it, it might actually be easier for the methylene blue to regenerate the NA, NAD plus um, and, and go through this pathway. And then, and then, lay, and, and then oxygen that's, that's around is going to oxidize the methylene blue or the, the leukomethylene blue back to the methylene blue as opposed to methylene blue interacting ex directly with the complex four. I'm just, I'm thinking about, you know, in the inner mem, because the, the, the inner mitochondrial membrane is really, um, you know, it, it's very difficult for biomolecules to penetrate um, that, that membrane. The outer membrane is, is, is easy. Of course, a lot of things can, but the inner mitochondrial membrane. Well, hydrogen um, goes through that in a heartbeat. What's that? High molecular hydrogen go through that. Yeah, that, that's one of the benefits about hydrogen <laughs> gas. Exactly. It's one of the few things that can easily penetrate that inner that inner mitochondrial membrane. Um, so anyway, I just, just kind yeah. of interesting. George, George I, neg I neglected to mention one of the other characteristics for Tyler. He's the founder of the Molecular Hydrogen Institute and pretty oh, much nice. responsible for introducing molecular hydrogen as a therapeutic therapy. I think it's great. I, I yeah. fully agree with all the benefits that are that are being uh, claimed about mycohydrogen. A couple of things on methylene blue. Uh, it's also clinically used for cancer diagnosis. Uh, because cancer cells are in such a high reductive state, uh, overproduction of lactate, to be specific, uh, when they do a, like a, some kind of a, a scoping thing, such as an endoscopy or colonoscopy, if they see a suspicious region, uh, which they don't think warrants biopsy, they inject with methylene blue. And then they measure how quickly the color disappears. There's apparently these tables which tell you basically whether the tissue is cancerous. If it gets fully reduced, in other words, colorless, 
within, let's say, I'm saying blankly, 10 seconds, that that tissue is cancerous, needs to be biopsied. Um, so another thing, it, it does just like you said, it definitely does reoxidize directly NADH back to NAD+. That has already been proven in solution. It does not need any enzymatic like uh, help. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know that the mechanism is well understood what, what exactly, how exactly it breaks the bond between nitric oxide and um, uh, and complex four. Yeah, uh, but it, but it's been proven. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it's also being used for carbon monoxide poisoning, because it does that too. Uh, I don't I don't think the mechanism has been fully elucidated. I've looked into that, and all it says is that methylene blue has been known for 100 years to be able to treat early stages of carbon monoxide poisoning. But I, I haven't seen an explanation how. How that actually breaks that bond. Hmm, fascinating. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I think... Um... Yeah, because I know they, they also do like similar type of injections with, with cancer with a, like a glucose, um, you know, radio label glucose molecule yeah. to see how quickly it gets oxidized. So that makes sense with doing that with the methylene blue. And you can also uh, use it as a marker for spoiled milk, right? Right, Georgie? Yes. Uh, I mean, how quickly it will get uh, it will get it will get decolorized. You can also use it to to, uh, to test for the presence of vitamin C. Uh, actually, yeah. there's a there's a cancer drug on the market which is vitamin C with a quinone, but it's vitamin K3 in this case because just like methylene blue, it accepts I think two electrons from vitamin C it becomes dehydroscorbic acid, which is uh, picked up by the cancer cells by the exact same transports as glucose, but the oxidized version of of, of vitamin C, dehydroscorbic acid lowers the pH of the cancer cell, and that results in immediate apoptosis. The drug is called Apatone, A-P-A-T-O-N-E. I think already approved for prostate cancer, but now they're finding this exact same mechanism works for many other cancers. In other words, lowering the pH of the cancer cell by, by giving it a molecule that is very greedy for, in this case, right. the oxidized uh, vitamin C. That's, that's fascinating. And I think you said something that I want to elaborate on a little bit more about how lowering the pH of the cancer cell can induce apoptosis. Um, so many people that have this idea that cancer it, cancer cells are acidic and they can't survive in an alkaline environment. We just and, discussed this with Dr. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I, I yeah. just, you know, I hear this and, and it goes back to this uh, false attribution to Dr. Otto Warburg. And right. they say, of course, that he 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 said. And he, he never said that. Surprised that cancer can't survive in an oxygen-rich or alkaline environment. And, and of course, he didn't say that. And in fact, his research shows the very opposite of that. And I, I think it's very important we understand that. And I think cancer, you know, it, it, you're right, the acidic pH will kill the cancer. And it's going through glycolysis so much that the pH will get really low and it'll kill itself. And so it develops, right, these, uh, these transporters to excrete the proton really yep, effectively. Yep, yep. And so the 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 out in the blood that those areas the interstitial space and the extracellular fluids it's possible that those areas can have a slightly lower pH because the cancer cells are excreting all of this acid but the cancer cell itself is becoming more and more alkaline and it's the alkalization that can induce metastasis and cancer progression and everything and so I think it's a very good point that you, I guess you guys have talked about it, but I want to talk about it yeah, again. It's, it's fascinating. Such a big misunderstanding. It's, it's the core, really, of pro-metabolic therapy with respect to cancer is that the thesis is that the mitochondrial is dysfunctional, largely through its focus on fatty acid oxidation uh, as a, instead of glucose. And it has to do with the Randall cycle too, because the Randall cycle, if, if you have too much fat, 
uh, speculated about 30% or so, then you're unable to preferentially oxidize glucose in the mitochondria. And, and that, so it shifts to glycolysis. And if you do this systemically in large amounts, it's this shift in the, in the percentage of the cells that are involved in glycolysis that, that sets up this, you know, potentially the, the Warburg effect that that contributes to the development of the cancer and then eventual spread of metastasis. Two things I would like to add. There is a drug called yeah, yeah. Acet- acetazolamide. It's a carbonic anhydrase sure. inhibitor. So it raises mitochondrial levels. Basically, it pre- prevents the, the breakdown of carbon dioxide. Uh, every single cancer tried uh, in vitro or in vivo with acetazolamide, the, basically the drug induces almost immediate apoptosis. So now they're trying it for humans. In other words, acidifying the cancer cell because Gosh. carbon dioxide is a Lewis acid. Uh, is basically may be cured for many types of cancer already in human trials. But you can look at, if you just type acetazolamide cancer, like at least a thousand studies will come up on PubMed. Uh, yeah, and we talked about it uh, even simpler in, in non-drug therapy, which is simple bicarb, a teaspoon yep. of bicarb a few times a day. Well, that 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 is the opposite, though, right? I mean, I think we need to talk about that because that's because bicarbonate increases the pH, right? And we're talking about lowering the pH, and so there's a there's a paradox that I think we should reconcile. Well, but I think it, it it increases it in intracellularly because of lactic acid or lactate. Well, yeah. So 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 what we can do is. We have the cancer cell itself that we want to lower its pH. We want to right. lower the pH of the cancer cell, and that's going to induce apoptosis. Right. But as but the cancer cell is putting out a lot of acid into the blood and extracellular, well, first interstitial, but really very quickly extracellular space. And so by taking bicarbonate, then your your body can to can regulate and buffer that extra acid load a lot more effectively. Yeah, and, so it doesn't. So the, the cell is the internal cell is not required to excrete it, and it retains it, and thus low uh, lowers the pH. Yeah, it's going to be a lower. It's going to be able to lower the pH because it's going to have a. Well, actually, we could talk about uh, concentration gradients, right? If yeah. as, as long as the concentration gradient is is high enough to allow the proton to be excreted very easily, right? Then then it's going to make it make a very favorable. Um, transaction so to speak right and so that's probably why uh, there are some indications where bicarbonate could be helpful but but there are some studies where bicarbonate actually has the opposite effect because maybe you're 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 inducing alkalosis and now when you have a situation of alkalosis now it's making that gradient not as uh, favorable because your the ph of the cancer cell is already really high and then the ph of the blood is high and so it's, it's going to be contraindicated so it, it I, i'm just saying it's not the, if somebody has cancer, it's not the best idea for every situation, in every case to go get some extra bicarbonate. That may not be what you want to do. If there is elevated lactate in the blood, wouldn't that indicate that bicarbonate would be warranted? Because most of these people, if you test their bicarbonate levels, are extremely low. Yes, I would test the bicarbonate levels to see what, what that is. Um, and you can test the pH, you can test the PCO2, you can test the... you know, If, if those levels, uh, you could probably... you know. I, I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't want to, you know, start going too far off. But I think there are probably ways you can measure those areas, and then that'll give you an indication of whether it makes sense for you or not to to take yeah, bicarbonate. More than likely, it would benefit, but ideally, you would want to do those measurements first clinically, so you're not giving the therapy incorrectly. Yeah, yeah. A couple of cancer cells with bicarbonate uh, demonstrated disappearance of metast- of already existing metastases and prevention of the formation of new ones. Um, 
both in vitro and I think two rat studies and whatnot. But again, with human tumors, there were xenograft yeah. models. These, so are these your these are your studies, Georgie? No, not mine. Actually, others. I think one is from Harvard and the other one is from uh, Stanford, I believe. But uh, I yeah, have them on my blog. I can send them over. Yeah, I've seen I've seen I've seen similar one one of those specifically, but I've seen ones, and that's why I'm saying I think that there is benefits there. But I, um, you know, but but maybe it's not for everybody, right? Okay. And, and yeah, I, yeah. there are some other studies where um, alkalinization of the tumor cell, for example, in in it promotes this metastasis and further progression, and so we have to be careful with that. And the other thing I wanted to say, just going back to cancer in the mitochondria. It is interesting because the the you know if, as cancer can get gets I don't know there's there's a dependent on the cancer cell and how much ATP it's getting from mitochondria versus the glycolysis but the the mitochondrial ATP production is still pretty high in cancer cells it's still going up quite high but some cancer cells of course they kind of they try to shut off the mitochondria because the mitochondria is is really smart. And it, it'll recognize, you know, something's not quite right. And so it'll send out a, a, a signal. They'll release a cytochrome C, for example, which will induce apoptosis. apoptosis yeah. So, yeah, I, there's, there's, uh, there's one of another drug. I don't, you probably know the name of it, um, but, but it basically it's to inhibit glycolysis, to promote um, all the ATP production from just the mitochondria. And then as soon as it does that, it really wakes the mitochondria up. And then the mitochondria uh, sends well, out. Well, aspirin will do that. What's that? Aspirin will do that. Aspirin will do that. And uh, another thing is, the, so basically the, another f- uh, factor controlling both glycolysis and PDH is the ratio of ATP to ADP. So yes. cancer cells are producing a lot of ATP through any means, basically, this means that glyco- glycolysis may be high, but PDH will be low. So one way is to lower ATP. Um, and and I think also lowering glycolysis, if cancer cell is producing its ATP predominantly by glycolysis, that ratio will drop and will probably allow the glucose, the pyruvate to go further. Yeah. Well, and, and acidifying the cancer cell itself is going to actually help to lower glycolysis because mm-hmm. that, that's, of course, with exercise, one of the reasons for fatigue among the many um, mm-hmm. is is the lowering of the, inter- of the of the muscular pH, you know, 6.8 or so, you know, that that's going to shut off um, you know, your, your phosphatructokinase enzyme, for example, which is rate limiting step in glycolysis. So if you can do that with a cancer cell also, well, then you shut it off from being able to do glycolysis. And you also um, increase the uh, um, phosphorylation of the PDH kinase, which is going to inhibit that. And then all the hypoxia, that, that's also going to decrease the activation of um, the mitochondria. And so pretty much, yeah, you, like you said, you don't get any more um, or you decrease the amount of ATP in the cancer cell. The cancer cell typically has, uh, unless you do those things, te- the cancer cell already has more ATP than it needs. Yeah, it's not true. doing all the metabolism to get energy. It's doing all the metabolism maybe to get, you know, car- carbon substrates for anabolism and to grow and spread and so, and so forth. So it's, it's probably a pretty good target to try to shut down that, how much of the ATP. Cause as soon as you, as soon as you do that, well, now you, you, it's, it's, it's not just about stopping this energy, energy supply, but stopping the um, reactions from occurring because mm-hmm. those, those carbon molecules are what's needed to for the cancer to grow. And you're basically stopping that, forma- that process to continue going. And the latest offshoot of that approach is basically they're saying, let's not worry about the absolute levels of ATP. Let's look at how the ATP is produced. And if you look at the cancer cells 
every single type of tumor seen so far produces most of its ATP as a result of beta oxidation. And that's why it's la- wasting the glucose into lactate because when you oxidize predominantly fat, that lowers the NAD to the NADH ratio, which puts the cell in a more reductive state. And also NAD to the NADH ratio is one of the controlling levers on pyruvate dehydrogenase. So some studies lately, over the last maybe not two or three years, uh, one of them used meldonium, which is a drug that inhibits the uh, the transport and, of course, the oxidation of the longer chain fatty acids. It's a Russian drug back in, invented back in the 70s. It's also a doping drug because it increased endurance. Uh, so they demonstrated complete removal of human neuroglioblastoma in a mouse model by doing nothing else but lowering basically the excessive oxidation of fats, which allows more glucose to be oxidized and shifts the, the cancer cell. First, it doesn't change the ATP production. It, it remains the same, but the NADA, the mitochondrial NADA to the NADH ratio rises and the cell acidifies, which basically allows it to either return to normal metabolic state or commit apoptosis if it's too damaged to continue. Okay, so let me see if I understand this. This is interesting because we, we talked about in one example where you're, you're, you're trying to inhibit glycolysis, force right. the cancer to use the mitochondria, and then that causes cytochrome C release and induce apoptosis. But and if, you, if now, you're inhibiting glycolysis in, in the context of high fatty acid oxidation, you're not going to be doing anything about that. So the glycolysis, you inhibit it, but until PDH is actually the break on PDH is released, which appears to be, aside from deficiencies in the cofactors, appears to be predominantly the mitochondrial NAD to the NADH ratio, which beta oxidation potently lowers. Yeah. Inhibiting glycolysis will not have the, you may have a somewhat of a therapeutic effect, but not to the point where you're, where you're restoring glucose oxidation. Okay. Yeah. So I, I get, I get that our initial part, but this, this other, where you're, you're essentially inhibiting beta oxidation. So you don't have um, you know, that, that rate, that, that harmful ratio, the higher, higher yes, NADH, yeah. you know, uh, and FADH2, exactly. um, you know, levels. So, yeah, I can see in cancer cells, this could be, uh, that's going to be problematic. And I actually would say that even people who try to do a high fat diet for prolonged periods of time, chronic high fat mm-hmm. diets probably are going to have similar issues. Um, we just discussed it with but, Dr. McCullough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because you, you are creating a reductive stress. Yeah. You are yeah. increasing NADH yeah. levels. Um, you are going to potentially cause reverse electron transport yep. Um, yep. and a yep. lot more free radicals. Not potentially. A study just came out said all that is required for the re- for the re- uh, 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 reverse electron transport to occur is a sufficient drop in any of the oxidized versus reductive ratios. Ubiquinone to ubiquinol was a specific study we, yeah. we looked at. NAD to the NADH, pyruvate to lactate, uh, oxidized glutathione to reduce glutathione, uh, acetoacetate versus beta hydroxy. Any of these is an indication of the redox status. Any of these mitochondrial ratios dropping is going to put the state, uh, the cell into reductive stress, excessive glycolysis, not excessive glycolysis, buildup of pyruvate, and of course, buildup of lactate reactively. Right, right. Yeah, I can, I can see it. That would make that would make sense. Now, I, I just maybe a, a pushback because. You do create um, some extra free radicals for, with a with a reverse electron transport chain. So 
I would say uh, similar to exercise, right? It, it, we all know that exercise is great for you when you only do it periodically, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, by, by meaning like every day, you know, for an hour or whatever, Small. as opposed to 24-7. With some rest times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, or, or rest hours for, for, yeah. for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but as opposed to, right, uh, doing it for 24-7. Right. And so I, I would say that, you know, doing it, maybe even a periodization type type approach where, you know, may, maybe doing a, a uh, you know, whether it's fasting or a high fat diet for, you know, a, a small amount of time where you, you actually are increasing free radical production through via reverse electron transport. That's hormetic. And there's a number of studies showing a hormetic effect um, and beneficial effect of raw signaling. But that, by the de by definition of hormesis, it's only hormesis until it becomes toxic. Exactly. So you can't take something that's hormetic and just keep on doing it because now it's it's poison, it's toxic, right? Which so, is the vast majority of people with the doctor stress, they're in it twenty four seven continuously. They don't take a break from it. Yeah. Well, that yeah, if they're if they're doing a twenty four seven like a you know ketogenic diet or something like that. Then, then it's then it's terrible. But but we can't. I would say we can't say. Well, everybody is stressed, so therefore nobody should do this type of cycling. No, no, right. It's right. A, it's right. It, it has or, to be periodic. It can't be continuous. Exactly. Anything. So if you, if somebody is already super stressed, then that doesn't mean that they should never do any any other stressful exercises, stressful hormetic approaches. Right. Mm -hmm. If if you're super stressed then that means that you probably aren't going to be able to handle going out and running, you know, 20, 30 kilometers and, you know, in just out of the blue, right? Mm -hmm. You want to take it easy. And so, you, but, but you do want to do something. So do a little bit of exercise, cycling, running, do may, maybe change your diet a little bit to doing something for a, for a small period of time to get that hormetic stressor, but just be really careful. You're not doing it too much that you're you're causing the very damage and problems you're trying to uh, reduce another thing that i wanted to mention which which i'm sure you know but most experts and most books kind of completely miss is that the reactive oxygen species uh, everybody's afraid of them we talk about they may, may have a chromatic effect however apparently more than 97 percent of the reactive oxygen species are produced through reverse electron transport only one to three percent are produced through forward now, if excessive fatty, oxid fatty acid oxidation, excessive, of course, we have to define it. It's I not known yet. I thought it was 0.5%. Oh, 0.5. Yes, yeah, I'm 0. sorry. Yes, doc, thank you, 99.9%. Yeah, it's like 0.1 to 0.3, 0.5% is, is what is my most recent read right. of the literature yeah. when, when you but are functionally the, normal. But that, exactly, but that, that's only through forward. Exactly. Apparently, as soon as you start doing reverse, you're generating massive amounts of ROS way beyond the chromatic response and fatty acid oxidation is the best at inducing that response. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I, I would fully agree. And that's why I would say that I, I've never been a proponent for high fat diets, especially first off, there's two things There's one, the, 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 the benefits and problems of the high fat diet. And just briefly, the benefit of course is um, you are going to create some more free radicals. You do get a hormetic response. You can potentially activate mitochondrial biogenesis. You can have all these things if you do it for the right amount of time and not chronically. And of course, the downside of that is it's 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 not too difficult to do it for too long of time and have a lot of damage, and you're not ready to do it because um, it's your your body has to adjust. It takes time to to just to to, to do that right. And then number two, a kind of different tangent, but just the benefits of carbohydrates, I think, have have uh, pe people haven't really realized. I mean, 
the carbohydrates have a lot of benefits for immune system, for, um, for, for the brain function, for, for a lot of things that maybe we can go into a little bit later, but, but focusing on this area of the, um, the hormetic effect, right. Of fatty acid oxidation. I, I completely agree with, with what you said. That's a reverse electron transport chain can be very damaging, um, if it's excessive, but then to your point, we have to define what, what does that mean? And for somebody who is maybe a super trained endurance athlete and is, is healthy and everything, they can probably go obviously longer and they can make more of those free radicals and get more of a hormetic response before they start having, you know, problems. Yeah. Um, and, 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 it, and the, the body, you know, we, our, our body, our mitochondria are really amazing. And so it's not like we accidentally, unfortunately are making free radicals, right? But, but these <laughs> We, we, we specifically, we have specific enzymes and places and reasons to make these free radicals for a very specific reason. And, and, and so we'll make like superoxide, for example, superoxide will be produced. And then in, in a very specific location, it does a very specific signaling, and then it's converted to say hydrogen peroxide. And then, and then there's even aquaporin right next where hydrogen peroxide is produced, a little channel where hydrogen peroxide can go through and do a little bit more signaling. And then it's converted by say catalase, uh, you know, to, to, to water and, and oxygen. And so everything is very, very tightly regulated. And so we absolutely want to have free radicals, but normally we get enough free radicals just by living, breathing, doing mild exercise and so on. And we can get some hormetic responses by having fluctuations in a diet where we have, you know, an overnight fast. We have um, maybe a higher fat meal and higher protein than normal. And this is a variation that we have evolved to do as opposed to, you know, six months or, or several years on just a high fat diet. Um, that, that's not something that we have been adapted to. Well, well even with forward uh, electron flow, you're going to get 0.5% reactive oxygen. Right. So you need them. They're just, yeah. the, the key is, uh, the, 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 pro, the issue is, what's the level? Is it excessive? The only physiological state where you want more, and they're usually produced uh, uh, through the forward electron transportation, if you have an infection. That's probably the only time that I can think of superoxide uh, or the hydroxyl radical being needed in higher than normal amounts, higher than 0 0.3 to well, 0.3. Well, and, but, but it's very it, tightly controlled. It's, it's it is, but that's hours. talking about the mitochondria because yeah. typically during an infection, we're talking about increasing superoxide with the NOx enzymes, NADPH oxidase, which yeah. are, are specifically you know designed to combat the infection. I'm not so sure that superoxide from the mitochondria is going to be able to make it all the way through. The, it, it can't even go through the cell membrane. It has to be, you know, it protonated. Maybe, maybe it can go, but it, but its half life is so short, right? So it's not even the mitochondria versus electron transport chain. It's these other enzymes that our our body we we've developed specific enzymes for when the infection does come. We can produce levels of hypochlorite and nitric oxide and superoxide and everything Perhaps else to attack that infection. And peroxynitrite. Do you know of a, of a yes. study that has looked strictly at the mitochondrial production of the ROS, or any of them, in the context of like long-term production and disease? The ones that I've seen invariably say that's a bad thing. They can damage DNA, right? They can damage. Actually, the most recent study that I sent, Dr. McCall said that just a simple drop in the redox indicator, in this case, ubiquinone to ubiquinol, uh, causes the cell to physically destroy complex one. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe it's just a signal that the cell doesn't need it. It's energetically expensive to maintain. But that's enough to cause structural damage, which for a long time medicine said, now functional and structural are different. Structural can cause functional, 
but functional, unless you're getting some kind of a mutagen, we don't really think can cause you know damage to the DNA and the structural machinery. Turns out that a very simple drop in shift towards reduction is, is capable and complex too, too. And conversely, shifting back into the oxidized state uh, allowed the cell to regenerate both complexes. Yeah, you know, it is it is interesting and in how fast the cells will work. So during like periods of hypoxia, you'll you'll quickly activate the hypoxia inducible factor. Mm-hmm. And this will this transcription factor will then increase um, um, uh, enzymes that will phosphorylate PDH, for example, to slow down the whole, the entire complex. Um, uh, you'll be a decrease in the Krebs cycle, as well as um, uh, changing out uh, uh, um, complex four um, that can handle the oxygen uh, low oxygen levels better. Because otherwise, in hypoxic conditions, you get a great mismatch between oxygen availability and um, and and the, and the electron flow, and so you get a lot more oxidative damage. And so it's very quick, the response of the cells to degrade the current complex and, and manufacture, synthesize other complexes so they can handle these different oxygen tensions. And so, like you said earlier, everything is so tightly controlled and regulated. And this is a good example of just how tightly it is and how quick it can, it can happen. And just because I do do research on hydrogen gas, I think I, I wanted to mention why, again, why hydrogen gas is so interesting in these areas, specifically in the in the realm of ischemia and reperfusion, right? Mm-hmm. So the ischemia being for, for the audience that where, where you don't have the oxygen present, um, so you have a hypoxic environment, and that's going to cause some free radical damage because, like I said, you get a mismatch between oxygen availability and the electron flow when you're trying to get ATP and, and everything. And, and, clinic, and then you get go clin- ahead. Cl- clinically that would be. A stroke, heart attack, ischemic heart attack, yeah, yeah, yeah. same thing. That's where we're going to see it. Exactly. Anytime there's a stop in blood flow, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and but most of the damage comes from the reperfusion side, yep. where mm-hmm. you when where now you got the heart to start beating again, you clear the blockage, and so the oxygen-rich blood is able to travel through those tissues. Well, now you're like waking up the mitochondria, and now it's like trying to get active again, and you end up producing a lot of free radicals and oxidative damage. And hydrogen gas, the first study um, uh, that really showed us therapeutic effect was in Nature Medicine, published in 2007. And they administered simply 2% hydrogen gas. And they found it was a a stroke model. uh, And and they found 2% hydrogen gas completely prevented the brain damage. I mean, you can look at the the, uh, images of the brain, and it's completely different. Where the one without hydrogen gas, I mean, just all the white area, the dead part of the brain versus the other side or the other group, um, the 2% hydrogen gas really prevented that. And hydrogen gas w- does a couple of things, but it kind of as a, as a pretreatment to improve um, the oxygen handling capacity of the mitochondria. And in fact, I was talking with Dr. McCullough at the conference a little bit, but some data is, indicates that hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, somehow acts as a, an electron transport chain rectifier. So in yeah, some- We never case, finished that conversation actually. Yeah, you well, easy with it. We never finished it. Okay, yeah, we kind of started a little bit with it, but but this is extremely fascinating because we talk about how the electron transport chain um, is so important. That we want we want four four electron transport chains so we can get ATP production um, and we can get a little bit of free radicals that we can handle. Sometimes we can get a little bit of reverse electron transport chain, a little bit more free radicals just for some hormetic effects. We don't want to go too far out of the, that homeostatic range and hydrogen gas is able to really uh, 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 modulate this entire process as a rectifier. And, and, it, and it does so 
because in some cases it's going to help act as an electron sink and sometimes an electron donor to make to get things to go where it needs to where it needs to be. And I, I'm, I was going to this, this is in the mitochondria. Yeah, this is the mitochondria, the electron complex. chain. Okay. And, and actually, if you look at the redox potential of the different complexes, the complex one, two, three, and four, um, and then you look at the redox potential of hydrogen gas at physiological pH, um, that it, it's it's right in line with where it where you would want it to be, so that it can participate as being a rectifier of the electron transport chain. Now, the the actual Primary targets and mechanisms are not fully elucidated. We're getting closer. There was a, pub, a paper published um, from some of my colleagues in China where one of the targets is the iron porphyrin, um, where, which is rich in uh, you know red blood cells, uh, you know hemoglobin and the mitochondria, and and this is a biosensor redox catalyst of the molecular hydrogen, and this might be why it can help participate in. This, this redox uh, homeostasis, as well as, um, th this is another interesting area, but we talk about carbon monoxide poisoning and carbon monoxide having lots of negative effects, but we didn't say that carbon monoxide also has a lot of therapeutic effects when, again, it is produced at very low concentrations at the right space, um, at the right time, and for the right, in the right levels. And there's, there's thousands of studies about carbon monoxide as a very important um, gasotransmitter. And uh, hydrogen gas, uh, it, it has this ability by acting through this uh, um, iron porphyrin um, catalyst to convert some of the CO2 to carbon monoxide, and the carbon monoxide can do some of this therapeutic signaling. It's a, it's a small amount. And more research needs to be done on this, like in vivo, but we, this has been demonstrated, at least in vitro, and it could explain some of the pleiotropic effects and benefits of molecular hydrogen. And that could explain why in some cases we see that with administration of hydrogen, we see increases in electron transport chain activity, increase in ATP production uh, in all of these areas. But in other cases, we can see the opposite. We'll see actually a suppression of free radicals. Okay, so like one example, for example, we often will see a decrease in free radical production uh, through hydrogen gas, especially like NADPH oxidase systems or anytime things are too active, um, we will see a decrease in the production of free radicals. And that's one reason it can have antioxidant effects. But we also see, and not number of studies, we, ha we have shown this in several of our, our studies, both clinical uh, studies and in, and in vitro studies, we can show that hydrogen gas can actually act as a hormetic agent to mildly increase free radicals. So like a small amounts of extra superoxide production, for example. And it's only a brief period of time. It depends on the, the timetable, um, the timescale when you're measuring it. Because if you measure it in an early stage, you might see a small amount and then later on it's gonna be a decreased amount, followed by an induction of the NRF2 keep one pathway. And so, again, hydrogen is able to, another reason why it can act as an as a, uh, antioxidant is because it's able to activate the NRF2 keep one pathway and, and, and it modulates this. So it doesn't just activate it like, you know, sulforaphane or other compounds is just always going to activate it. It's, it's a regulator of this pathway to maintain redox homeostasis. And it also acts as this mitochondrial electron transport chain rectifier. Nice. Thanks for the explanation. So we've, we've got to probably get going in a bit because we've been out for a while. Uh, but I have one final question for you and Georgie, and that would be mostly you, though, since you're the expert in molecular hydrogen. 
it seems to me like it would be a really powerful synergy with methylene blue. That would be very interesting. I would need to, I want to run a research a little bit more about the methylene blue area of that. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Um, I, I, and I actually have some ideas that make me excited about why it could be a synergistic. There, there's some ideas about why it could be synergistic with red light therapy and other oxidative type therapies, mm-hmm. especially now that we know more of the mechanism with this iron porphyrin mm-hmm. uh, biocatalyst. Um, but I, I, you know, as scientifically, we don't just look for reasons why it should work. We're trying to look for reasons why it probably doesn't work. Oh, right, yeah, the negative, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, 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 I'm so before I get too excited about saying yes, that's a really good idea. I'm trying to go through, you know, m- maybe why it's, you know, not going to be as good as we, we we would like it to be. Of course, I don't know of any clinical studies that have. Of looked, course not. No. But maybe that's something that we should look into. That that would be interesting. Sure. Any any comments, Georgie? Uh, first, I wanted to go back a little bit to the hydrogen. Are you familiar with a product called Carbogen? So it's 5% carbon dioxide, 95% oxygen. Multiple studies on it demonstrating the exact same protective effect, especially during the reperfusion stage in uh, in ischemic events, both cardiovascular. Interesting. And, yeah. And, and and basically carbon dioxide, just as you mentioned, hydrogen yeah. can work, work both ways, kind of shuttle electrons when needed. Even though carbon dioxide does not directly do that, it's actually a Lewis acid. So yeah. it helps to shuttle them towards, you know, along the pathway. So it can, it can modulate, it can restructure a, a sort of like a destructed, destru- uh, a dysfunctional mitochondria. Uh, also drops the pH of the cell, which yeah. is uh, one idea why somebody, one reason why some people have proposed that raising carbon dioxide in the cell is good for cancer, which is the drug acetazolamide, what it does. But as far as methylene blue, I mean, um, I would think, and so far there are actually studies with it for several diseases, not not metabolic, or at least I mean, not I being mean, thought I of metabolic. I mean, gas and methylene blue. The, the, oh, the, both combined. Yeah, yeah, combining the synergy of the two. I think there's there's a, a, a high likelihood they're I know there are, yeah, I know there are clinical studies with methylene blue individually, but it would be interesting to look at. Yeah, yeah I don't know of any combination, but I think the yeah. the hydrogen will be very good at prevent it neutralizing the already existing reactive oxygen species, uh, pre- preventing them as well, and methylene blue definitely preventing by preventing this buildup of electrons that happens at any um, a- any step along the chain. A lot of people are uh, referencing many blue as like an electron transport chain specific molecule, but I think there is example also in helping the Krebs cycle as well. If you have a buildup of like citric acid or like a succinic, succinic acid that cannot go to fumaric acid, I think methylene blue. Yeah. Now the the dehydrogenase areas, yeah, NADHs, is probably, in just my, my ignorant opinion, it's probably doing more there yeah, the, the, and and in the other uh, NAD plus and NADH areas, we're directly acting with them than in the electron transport chain itself, because the electron transport mm-hmm. chain itself is extremely tightly regulated and perfect for oxygen to to be used right there. Um, so it's, it probably has its other areas. NDF, ADF, ADH. I think there's studies yeah, showing that it can re-oxidize, reoxidize. Yeah, that's the succinate dehydrogenase. Yeah, in the Krebs cycle, that the yeah, FADH two is the exact same. Um, uh, enzyme that is in the Krebs cycle. It's just membrane bound. Yeah. So what is it? Uh, Succinic dehydrogenase is also complex too, right? Yes, it is the same. Yeah, exactly. So I have never heard anyone speculate the mechanism of methylene blue was also in the Krebs cycle. This is the first. I think you may have come come up with it, Tyler. (laughs) But it makes sense. Makes sense. It's really good. Novel thinking. That's fun. George, yeah. it's a pleasure to meet you and talk with you. So, Dr. Cole, thanks for setting this up. Well, thank you for participating. It was, you. It's, uh, was a pleasure to 
be part of this. So thanks again. And uh, uh, we'll get together soon sometime. All right. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank you.